She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files podcast, season three. Episode 18. Teso dos Bichos. This episode is a Monster of the Week episode and originally aired on Friday, March 8th, 1996. It was filmed in British Columbia, Canada, and it was written by John Shebon and directed by Kim Manners. This is Shebon's second episode. His first was The Walk. He will stick around through season nine and he'll write or co-write 22 more episodes, one of which he'll also direct. And on Friday, March 1st, instead of a new episode, they aired a repeat of Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. I like how you're throwing shade on that. Instead of a new episode, <laughs> repeat. Well, you know, when I was a kid, I was probably incredibly disappointed to like turn it on. I mean, I'm sure we still watched it, but I was like, oh, it's a repeat. <laughs> it's not a new one. It's a bummer. It's always a bummer. Or you going off script with shade. Back in my day, you didn't, you couldn't just Netflix it on. Like you had to like, just watch whatever they aired and unfortunately sometimes it wasn't very exciting although i did like that episode a lot yeah in this episode despite the protests of the sakona tribe in amaru an urn that contains the remains of a female shaman is unearthed and brought to a museum in boston after one of the museum workers is violently murdered Mulder and scully arrive and try and figure out if it's the curse of the amaru that killed him or if it's just someone upset at the museum for taking the sacred artifact. So we are at the Teso dos Bichos excavation, Ecuadorian highlands, South America. At an excavation site, we see men are digging in various places, doing all that kind of stuff you do when you're doing archaeology. And they're extracting pieces of pottery. And then one of them finds this large piece and he kind of like pulls a little bit of it away. And he sees something and then he calls to the others. And almost everyone runs over and looks at what he's found including this man in a vest and everyone speaks in Spanish because we're in Ecuador, but it's not subtitled. However, the word malo is used a lot and the word malo means bad. So the man in the vest who we'll learn later is Alonzo Bilac says something akin to I'll be right back in Spanish. And then he runs off and then he arrives at a tent and inside he finds Dr. Roosevelt and tells him they found something he thinks Roosevelt should see. So Roosevelt follows Alonzo to the dig site where it's now snowing because they're, you know, high elevation. And we now see what they found. In the dirt, there's a skull inside a large pot. And Roosevelt bends down and touches the skull. He's like, it's an Amaru. It's fantastic. It's intact. And Alonzo tells him, like, we can't take it. And Roosevelt kind of looks like a kid who's just been told the cookies are for company and can't have any. Oh, he's like, <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah, he doesn't look sad or confused. He looks like like he mm-hmm. looks kind of angry. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, angry. yeah. He looks like that's a, a really good. That's so. an incredibly good description, too, because it's very much. <laughs> what do you mean? I can't have any cookies. Yeah. Yeah. So Alonzo explains the men are saying a female shaman is sacred to the tribe and they won't allow them to disturb her. Roosevelt gets up in his face and is like, we're not disturbing her. We're saving her. And he says, Alonzo knows the situation here. And he thought that Alonzo could handle these people. And he storms off. So Alonzo calls after him and is like, I think this is dangerous. I don't think this is right. And Roosevelt insists that they have the piece excavated and packed. It's going with them. And so Alonzo looks down at the skeleton and then up on a hill 
And up on the hill, he sees a man in a striped sarapa holding an ornamental staff of some sort. And the man makes eye contact with him. So he's probably like an elder or like a shaman or something himself. Well, later at night, the tents around the site are lit up and have fires burning outside. And Roosevelt is in his tent listening to music. And he's listening like the classical music because obviously he's like a British douchebag guy kind of person. <laughs> and then he turns the music down for a second because he hears something that sounds like like native drums. Oh, anyway, outside the men sit around a fire and some of them have their faces painted and some are playing drums and they're chanting and they've got this kind of like liquid jelly stuff in a pot on the fire. And the man in the stripes Rapa, he's got like cool snakes painted on his face. Anyway, he takes a spoonful of the stuff and he kind of does like a little chant and then he holds it up to the sky like for a blessing and then he pulls it down and he takes a sip. So it's like a big ceremonial spoon kind of thing. And then that gets passed from person to person. Each of them takes a sip. And then it gets to Alonzo and he kind of like, and he takes a sip and apparently it doesn't taste great. And maybe it possibly even burns. He's like, wow. And then suddenly we can kind of tell that Alonzo's vision is kind of getting distorted because we get the point of view of like, we see other people like, you know, have the spoon has been passed and they're drinking it, but they're all kind of like, Whoa. anyway, then we get a very similar point of view of that same distorted vision. It's moving through the campsite. Vroom, 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 vroom. And Roosevelt is still in his tent with his music playing. And the point of view arrives at the tent and goes in. And then we see a shadow of like some big like cat or something on the tent wall. And then something tackles Roosevelt. And he's like, ah! And then like his head is against the tent from the outside. We can see it. And he's like, ah, help! And then there's like blood everywhere. And he's basically dead. And it's a theme song. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> You were warned. You were warned. Yes, he was. He was warned. I am curious because now I'm just thinking like this just now occurred to me that if Roosevelt is killed the same day they find the urn, how did it even make it back to Boston? I guess maybe it was already packed and shipped or something. Mm, maybe because it is nighttime. Yeah. Anyway, just uh, just randomly popped into my head. I'm like, wait, anyhow, uh, we can talk about that more at the end. Maybe. So then we're at the Hall of Indigenous Peoples in the Boston Museum of Natural History, and it's three weeks later. And a security guard, Decker, enters the Hall of Indigenous Peoples carrying a flashlight. And he walks past some mannequins and display cases, and there's a stuffed leopard there. And he opens a door to like a workroom that's behind the display. And I think he might even go downstairs. I'm not entirely sure. But he opens the door and he's like, Mr. Horning, you still here? And there's no answer. So Decker heads further in and then he slips on something like his foot, like kind of slips and hits something a little squishy. And he looks down and he sees a pool of blood. So using his flashlight, he sees some debris on the floor and then this huge smear of blood, like maybe a body was dragged. His eyes widen and he turns and runs. And behind him, we see the Amaru skull in the vase. Decker is played by Ron Suave, who also appeared in the X-Files episode, The Host. He played the sewage foreman. Not Rico Suave. No, Ron Suave. He will also appear in two episodes of Millennium, again, as two different characters. And he's also appeared on The Commish, The Marshall, Cold Squad, and a handful of TV movies. Yeah, he was one of the people I thought would be a good, I remember at the time, although I think I forgot about him when we did our season two wrap up 
of people who we thought might be good recurring characters. Oh yeah. Okay, yeah. I can see that. So in a way he kind of is, but isn't but he's back again, but just playing someone different. So yeah. So the next day, police cars are parked outside the museum entrance. And inside, Mulder is with several people that are examining the crime scene. And Scully is there asking Dr. Luton how he learned about what happened here last night. And Luton says that Tim Decker, one of the security guards, called him first when he discovered the blood. And Scully says that according to the police, Luton feels this murder may have been an act of political terrorism. Luton explains that he believes Craig Horning was killed because of the project he was working on. And Scully lifts the file in her hand and asks if that project is the Highland Burial Grounds of the Sakona Indians. And Luton looks surprised that she knows that. And Scully tells him that she's holding a letter that was sent to the State Department on behalf of the Sakona demanding the return of a certain artifact. Also, don't doubt the power of Scully to know things. She knows lots of things. Doubt at your peril. Luton says that when Petro Ecuador announced plans to build a gas pipeline through the burial ground, Carl Roosevelt and Luton organized a dig. And Scully says as she understands it, Roosevelt disappeared under circumstances not unlike the ones here. And Luton says the Ecuadorian government claims that Roosevelt was carried off in some kind of animal attack. But that's not what you believe, Scully asks. And he says, well, not after last night. And we see Mulder is now kind of listening in. And Scully asks if they've gotten death threats, to which Luton says no. And Mulder's like, what about the curse? Because, <laughs> you know, Mulder's going right what for it. What about the curse? And he tells Scully that the Zakona believe great evil will befall anyone who disturbs the remains of an Amaru, a woman shaman. That they would be devoured by the jaguar spirit. And Luton says it's a myth that's gained some currency among the Zakona when Roosevelt disappeared. Luton thinks someone is exploiting the myth and using the fear to pressure them into returning the bones, which he has no intention of doing. And Mulder then asks if they can see the Amaru, and Luton says, of course. So he calls to a young woman, Mona, who's standing across the room so she can show them the Amaru. And Dr. Luton is played by Tom McBeath, who appeared in two previous episodes. He was a detective in three and a scientist in space. Hill also appears two different characters in Millennium. And additionally, he's had recurring roles on Dead Like Me, Riverdale, Stargate SG-1. And he's appeared on 21 Jump Street, The Commish, Highlander, and Supernatural. Someone else making the rounds. Yeah. Yeah. So Mona rolls the cart with the Amaru out of the closet storeroom, wherever it's being kept, into the large storeroom they're standing in. And Mulder says that if someone digs him up in a thousand years, he hopes there's a curse on them too. Mona says they should have left it buried. Then none of this would have happened. And Mulder asks her if she believes the bones are cursed. She says they may as well be. And Scully's like, well, did you know Craig Horning? And she says, yes, she's been helping him sort and catalog the artifacts. She's a PhD candidate at BU. And Scully asks if he had any warning that this could happen. And Mona says, no, he was so dedicated. He was just doing the work that Luton asked him to do. And then Mulder asks if Horning had any political feelings about the piece being brought to the museum. And Mona says no. And then Scully's like, well, are you aware of the letter of protest sent to the State Department about it? And Mona knows of several letters of protest. And then Scully's like, well, this one was written by Alonzo Belak. And Mona says that Dr. Belak was the liaison with the Sakona Indians. 
And Scully's like, well, is he still with the project? And Mona says, well, he either resigned or was forced out by Luton, depending on who you talk to. Because Dr. Belak believes the Zakona have the right to determine the fate of their ancestral remains. And Mulder's like, well, do you know where we could find him? And apparently she does, because then Mulder and Scully are knocking on the door to a house. And Alonzo Belak answers. And Scully tells them they're with the FBI and they're investigating the death of Craig Horning. She asks if they can ask him a few questions. He kind of doesn't react, sort of, kind of just kind of like very passive. But then he finally lets them in. And inside the house, there are lots of photos on the wall. And in the next room, there's like shelves of pottery and all that kind of stuff. And Scully says that Dr. Belak was part of the expedition that brought back the Amaru urn. And Belak asks who told her that. And Scully says Mona Westner. Belak says that he objected from the beginning. Scully says that he was Roosevelt's liaison in Ecuador and asks if at one point he did disagree with him about taking the artifacts. And Belak says that when he felt Roosevelt went too far against the wishes of the Sakona. Scully asked if he expressed that to Roosevelt, and he says yes, but that Roosevelt would not listen. Scully asks if he was speaking for himself or for the Sakona. And Belak says that he spent the last six months living with the Sakona, learning their culture. Scully says apparently they learned something from him too, probably referring to the protest letters. And Bilak says that he's been teaching them the ways of American bureaucracy. And then Scully tells him that Luton believes the urn is related to Horning's disappearance. And Bilak is like, you say disappearance if you expect to see him alive again. And Scully's like, what do you think happened to Horning? And Bilak says that she doesn't want to know what he thinks. But Mulder says they do want to know. They're actually very interested in what he thinks. Mulder sits down next to him. And Bilak says that he thinks what happened to Horning will continue to happen until the bones are returned to their rightful place. And Scully asks him how far he would go to defend the rights of the Sakona. And he scoffs and says that if she thinks he did this, she's a fool. And Scully asks where he was last night. And he says at home. And then Mulder's like, alone? And Bilak says, yes. And then he says that their investigation is a waste of time. That's something that he can definitely assure them of. Yeah. So as they leave Belak's home, Mulder says it's nice to meet people who really believe in something. And Scully says, you mean the kind who would kill for their cause? And Mulder's like, you think Belak is a suspect? And Scully thinks he's the suspect. And Mulder's like, based on what? And Scully says, well, based on the arrogance of his politics, his beef with Luton, his sympathies with the Sakona, and the lack of any other suspect. Mulder agrees he did look a little squirrely. And Scully's like, probably because he was up late last night murdering Craig Horning. <laughs> that was funny. Mulder reminds her that they have no body and no real forensic evidence except some blood, which Scully points out is Horning's blood. And she asks what he thinks Belak did with the body. And Mulder doesn't think he did anything. And Scully's like, so what, you think Horning was devoured by some mythical jaguar spirit? And Mulder's like, go with it, Scully. And gets in the car. Scully makes a face like she does not want to go with it but then she gets in the car as well and the scene was obviously played as if like he was like under the influence of something and mm. learned why but yeah he was definitely like yeah not in a a sober state of mind yeah so Mona's at her office in the museum and she's on the phone and she's asking the person on the other end why did you lie to them you're only drawing suspicion on yourself you should have told them the truth and we learn that she's talking to Alonzo Belak, whom she calls Lonnie. 
And the door is slightly open behind Mona. And Luton is there intently listening in. And Mona tells Lonnie she's worried about him. And she's like, I should come over. And then she's like, why? Why not? And then Luton pushes the door open further, which makes some noise and lets Mona know that he's there. So she sees him. And so she tells Belak that Dr. Luton is there and she has to go. And she hangs up. And Luton's like, I thought you already left. And Mona's like, I really just need to keep working right now. And Luton's like, well, I'd feel better if you weren't alone here. And she's like, the guard knows I'm here. <laughs> she just doesn't want any part of Luton. He's just kind of being a jerk. But I mean, he's not being a jerk, but you know, you can tell that she's kind of just like, oh, okay, okay. And Luton then is like, was that Belak on the phone? And Mona says that it was. And Luton's like, we have a responsibility to history and posterity. Roosevelt was only doing what any good conservationist would have been doing in bringing the Amaru urn back. And Mona's like, I know. And Luton continues that if we get caught up in politics, we lose sight of that. And then he starts to leave, but he stops and he's like, Mona, let me give you a little free advice. Uh Oh, free advice. Never. Not good. No. Yeah. He tells her, you have a bright future here. Be careful where you plant your flag. And then he leaves. And Mona sits at the desk to work. And then another door behind her, not the one that Luton left from opens And Mona's kind of like freaked out and gasped, but then a dog comes in and she's relieved and she's like, oh, sugar. And the dog jumps up for some pets and she pets the dog. And it's a very pretty dog. Mm -hmm. In the parking lot, Luton heads for his car, which is a Jaguar. He unlocks the door and gets in and he puts the key in the ignition, but it will not start. So annoyed, he grabs a flashlight from his glove box and he gets out to look under the hood. And as he does... We see that point of view thingy with the distorted vision that we saw in the teaser. It's watching Luton from the bushes. And then Luton sees some kind of liquid on part of the engine and he touches it and it's blood. And he's staring at the blood on his fingers and then something attacks him from behind and it knocks him on the ground. And he's like, ah, and he's trying to grab onto the underside of the car to like, you know, grip himself. He doesn't get dragged away and he's screaming. And he like rolls over and just loses his hat and basically gets dragged away and <laughs> dead. Basically, what happens? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah he's it's commercial, gonna... so <laughs> no, his so, ass is dead. Well, so. that's what you get for giving douchey advice to your <laughs> whatever undergrad is sitting there, like cataloging all your artifacts for you, probably for no pay and just like class credit or something ridiculous. Yeah. It looked more like corn syrup to me than blood. <laughs> I wonder if you tasted it. Anyway. Dr. Luton's name is actually a nod to Val Luton, who is a novelist, film producer, and screenwriter, and is probably best known for a string of low-budget horror films he produced for RKO Pictures in the 1940s, which include Cat People from 1942, I Walk with a Zombie, 1943, The Leopard Man, 1943, and Ooh. Curse of the Cat People from 1944. You might notice a uh, a trend line there possibly mm-hmm. might come up Maybe. later <laughs> he is also reported to have suffered from allurophobia which is an irrational fear of cats i like that it's an irrational fear of cats not just a fear of cats well i mean just a fear of cats would be like oh cats but a rational fear is like oh my god cats so yeah yeah gotcha yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah i mean I, I think that's pretty much clinical as far as that okay goes so yeah don't have the oh my god it's not 
phobia. So at the crime scene the next day, Scully is standing with a Boston police officer and they're examining Luton's engine. And then she uses a glove to extract a dead rat from the engine and puts it into an evidence bag the officer is holding. She tells him to label it. And he's like, as what? And she says, partial rat body part. And Mona is speaking with another officer near the medical examiner's car. And Scully goes and asks if she can have a word with her. And so this does two tick marks. One, it does the, I think we're going to start trying to make things jokey a little bit because the way Scully says like partial rat body, I think it's supposed to be like a little bit of a laugh line kind of thing. Yeah, well, I think it's supposed to be funny because he's just like, as what? And she's like, I don't know, partial rat body. Like, yeah. But her delivery definitely is like, it's got that kind of like, this is comedic. I'm going to say it this way kind of thing. And then also we get the thing again where Scully uses a glove as a Kleenex instead of just putting it on. I'm starting to actually wonder if Jillian Anderson was like adverse to like latex or something, because a lot of times like she does wear them sometimes and we get the big snappy stuff, right? Like in, you know, War of the Copper Phages where she's snapping the glove all the time. Um, or well, actually that was uh, Syzygy where the glove snapping, I think. So. But, oh yeah. When she was being cranky and she's just like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But I'm starting to wonder maybe if she was like had some issue with the gloves because her character in particular tends to use them as Kleenexes a lot instead of just putting them on, and which is a really good way to like contaminate evidence because she didn't got that. Other, especially because then she balls up the, when she's done and drops her. She balls the glove up and sticks it back in the <laughs> same pocket that she just pulled it out of where she probably also has some other clean gloves. So I'm like, oh. Probably some other random evidence that she just shoved in her pocket yeah. at some point and forgot yeah. about. Or, as we'll <laughs> see here, maybe something that's going to come up right now, because she asked Mona if she was working last night when Luton was killed. And Mona tells her that he stopped by her office on his way out. And Scully asked if she noticed anything strange or if Luton seemed nervous about anything. And Mona says no. And then Scully asks if he said anything about Dr. Belak. And Mona is like, no, but it's pretty obvious that she should be saying yes. And Scully asks if she knows the last time the two of them spoke. And Mona says she doesn't. And then Scully gives her her card and asks her to call her if anything comes to mind. I'm thinking, like, where did she keep those cards? Is it in the same pocket <laughs> with the bloody rat gloves? I don't know. But uh, we don't actually see where she pulled it from. She kind of like, like pat in her pockets, like, damn, where did I put those cards? And then she hands one to her. I don't see where she pulled it from. So, yeah. <laughs> Oh no! Oh dear! Oh no! <laughs> Get an Agent Scully business card with like a blood smear on it. You're like, what? <laughs> Rat blood. Oh, yeah. So meanwhile, Mulder's walking through this wooded area near the museum and there's other officers and they're just, you know, doing that thing where they're searching for a body. So they're kind of all spread out and going through the trees. And from up in a tree, we get that distorted vision POV that we saw attack Luton and it's looking at Mulder. (gasps) But then Scully comes walking up and she calls his name and he asks if they found the body and she says, no, they've been all over the museum grounds and nothing. And Scully's like, have you found anything out here? And Mulder says, if Luton was brought through here, it'll be hard to determine because it rained pretty hard last night. And Scully tells him the hood release on Luton's car had been pulled and they found a small flashlight near the car. So it seems like Luton was checking his engine when he was attacked. And Mulder's like, well, maybe someone didn't want that car to start. And Scully tells him that she doesn't think so. They found at least two rat bodies inside the engine. Apparently, the museum has had a rat problem and the rats probably crawled inside to keep warm. And Mulder makes a face because he doesn't yeah. like that idea. I'm 
honestly not sure if that's a, a gross face or if that's a oh poor rat's face. He's kind of like, hmm. But PSA, do your best to make noise, smack your vehicle, literally check your car's engine or tire wells if you have to in cold weather because cats will often crawl up into your engine compartments or into your tire wells to stay warm. And if you start your car and leave, you have a very good chance of killing or badly injuring an innocent animal. So, yes. So make noise and bang on your hood. Yeah. You or open, you know, outside. or literally open it up and check, look under yeah. your vehicle, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. So Mulder continues walking through the trees and Scully follows. And she's like, nothing adds up about these deaths. And Mulder asks about the estimated time of death for Luton. And Scully tells him between 930 and midnight when the guard discovered the blood. Mulder points out that's around the same time that Horning disappeared. And Scully tells him that she thinks Mona might know something. She got nervous when Scully asked her about Belak, and Scully thinks she might be trying to protect him. And then something red drips down onto Mulder's face. And he's like, oh, I think maybe it's starting to rain again. And she touches the spot and she shows him the red and she says, I don't think so. And they both look up and they see what looks like an intestine wrapped around a branch in the tree. And Mulder's like, what the hell is that? And he's like desperately trying to wipe the red stuff off his face. Like he keeps wiping at it. He's like, oh, get it off me. Get it off me. Yeah. And I was just like, got a bit of red on you. Oh, especially because intestines, that's even funnier, but yeah. Yeah. So then Mona arrives at Belak's home and knocks on the door, and there's no answer, so she tries the door, and it's unlocked. She opens it and calls for him before stepping inside, and of course, she's calling him Lonnie again. And it's dark inside, but there is a fire in the fireplace, so she calls for him again, and then she starts to open the blinds, and Belak is like, don't! And so then she can kind of see him. And she says she came to tell him that Dr. Luton is dead. Belak is super sweaty and does not look well. He's got like big old dark circles under his eyes and it's all like unshaven and just, yeah, not looking great. And he kind of doesn't really react to Mona. And so she asks if he heard what she said. And he sort of nods, but it looks like he's actually like struggling even to speak possibly. And he tells her that he told her not to come here. And she's like, why not? What's happened to you? And she tells him that ever since he came back, he's acting like a stranger, like someone else. So they may have had something going on between them, mm-hmm. possibly. Yeah. It'd be the first time that's happened in the X-Files with a PhD student and someone that they are working with. Anyway, he's like, the blood has to stop. And Mona realizes that he knows something and he tells her she wouldn't understand. And she's like, help me understand. And then she sees a bowl of yellow paste on the table, kind of like the stuff they were passing around in Ecuador, kind of yellowy, greeny gel stuff. And she asks what it is. And he says, it's the vine of the soul. And she says, Yahe, you're drinking Yahe. And she lifts the bowl from the table, but he wrestles it back from her and puts it down. And she tells him that he's sick and he needs help. And she starts to back away. And she's like, can't you see what you're doing to yourself? And then he tells her to go. And she pleases him, but he's like, get out. And then she starts crying and she runs out the door. Mm-hmm. So, yes. And Yahe is spelled Y-A-G-E with a little accent on the E. It's what woke white people in the U.S. called ayahuasca in the 1990s. Some indigenous people in Ecuador and Peru call it Natum. It has a lot of names throughout South America. So different people call it different stuff all over the place. Ayahuasca itself is a Hispanicized version of the word from the Quechuan languages, which are spoken in the Andean states of Ecuador, Bolivia, Peru, and Colombia. 
Obviously, the Sakona tribe is made up. However, the translation of Awahaska as vine of the soul is accurate. It can also be translated as vine of the dead. The fact that Yahe's ayahuasca makes this episode make a lot more sense. I mean, not. I shouldn't oh, okay. Say, Did you not? I knew it was something. I, I, I didn't know it was ayahuasca, but it, it at least explains some parts of this episode. Also, like, there are actually wellness, quote unquote, resorts like outside of the United States where you can go and you can like take ayahuasca with like mm-hmm. a group of people it's like a resort and they have like vegetarian food the podcast ono ross and carrie did a series where they went there and ross did ayahuasca carrie because she's on ssris cannot take it because it'll interfere with your medication so that's something to know if you ever want to mess around with it just it can mess with your drugs um yeah, and so she took the, uh, on the um, dmt kind of yeah yeah so there's a lot of people who think that it'll like heal you or do all this stuff and she she did the um what's it called holistic version or something like that what's it called when you do the water thing and you dilute things homeopathic yeah she did the homeopathic ayahuasca uh, which they also offer for the same high price and you know obviously did not have any effects but ross tripped balls and it was really funny and they have like a long i think it's like five or six episode series so if you're interested in that it's really fascinating if you want to hear more about ayahuasca yeah, I'm sure if you tune into almost any episode of fucking Joe Rogan, you can hear the same stuff. Yeah. Well, well, maybe not. not. Not the same stuff. I just no. always a different take on it. But if you well, want yeah, to their hear. take on it is like kind of debunking these claims yeah. that they make about how and what yeah. it actually feels like to use it, whereas they're not endorsing it in any way, shape, or form. No, whereas <laughs> yes, with the exact opposite. But there um, are people who make lots of money selling, you know, like come stay at our ayahuasca resort, and take these drugs, and you know, yeah. It's a thing. So in a medical suite, Scully's wearing scrubs and she's standing over a table where the intestine is laid out. And she tells Mulder that it's a human small intestine. And he asks if she's sure it's Luton's. And she says, yes, based on what he had for lunch. Apparently he ate corn chowder that day. And it also looks like he was snacking on sunflower seeds. So Mulder jokes that he was a man of taste because we all know Mulder loves sunflower seeds. She points to a container Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's like his lunch leftovers or what. No, that's what container. she pulled out of the intestine, I think. Okay. I'm so like, that's, you just that's what... like have some of it. <laughs> she like, just, oh, yeah, just has corn chowder hanging around. Yeah. Like it's in the museum, you know, canteen or something. So no, I think it's what she okay. pulled out of the intestine. Okay. I wasn't sure. <laughs> Scully, however, can't determine how the body was eviscerated because obviously she doesn't have the body. She just has this piece of it. But there are no knife marks on the intestines, so it would have had to have been pulled or torn out. And she can't be totally sure of that either due to postmortem predation. So possibly something dragged it away after he died. Who knows? And Mulder asks by what? And Scully says, well, based on the bite marks, a small animal, probably a rat. And Mulder just says, more rats. So I don't, I'm getting the feeling Mulder doesn't really like rats. <laughs> or just like they keep showing up like yeah. rats everywhere. Yeah. So. so then Scully's phone rings and it's Mona. And Mona tells her that Dr. Bilak scared her and she thought he was going to hurt her. She left his house and she went to the museum, but now she feels like someone's there and watching her. And then Sugar, the dog that she has, barks and it kind of startles her. And Scully tells her to stay there. She's going to send Agent Mulder over there right now to get her. And Mona's like, okay. And so she hangs up and Sugar barks a few times and Mona grabs a crate labeled Teso Dos Bichos and opens it. 
And then she takes a tool and she looks like she's maybe going to start extracting the skull from the Amaru. Yeah, which doesn't seem like a good plan. No, I'm not really sure what she's doing. But then Sugar growls and barks several times. So Mona puts the tool down and she turns off the light and she and Sugar head into the hall. And there's some noise coming from up ahead. And Sugar actually stops in the hall and makes this low growl, but Mona keeps walking. And it's like this odd rattling noise that's coming from the woman's bathroom. So she goes to the woman's bathroom and she opens the door and she's, you know, trying to figure out where the noise is coming from. And she opens a stall and the toilet lid is shaking. It's like shaking and banging. And then she sees that all the toilet lids and all the stalls are shaking. So she bends down, she opens one of the toilet lids and it's full of rats clawing to get out. And she screams. This is commercial. And how many times do I have to say it, people? We know what commercials mean. Yep. Yeah. So I have a question for you, Tori. Yep. Okay. So all your colleagues are being killed. Mm-hmm. Right. And your dog is barking and growling. And so you, instead of staying in a room that you can lock and be safe in, you decide to go out into the hallway. And your dog, who is probably there to protect you, stops. It's like, hell no, I ain't going any further. So you keep going and then you go into the bathroom and you hear this noises getting scarier and louder. And then you look and you see the toilet lid bouncing up and down. Do you lift the toilet lid? Um, assuming you did all the other things that I'm assuming you probably would not do. I mean, uh, I mean, curiosity would really, really get to me, but I don't think I would have even gotten that far. I don't think I would have gone back to the museum. I probably would have gone home and locked several doors. So I don't know why she's even at the museum, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can see why she'd want to know what is making the noise. Cause to be honest, if there's a weird noise and it's bothering me, it will, I will hunt to the end of the earth to figure out what the frick that noise is. Like that is one of my things. Like I'll be like, what yeah, is that noise? But, but you're not hearing weird noises when everyone around you has already been killed. Yeah. Well, and yeah, I wouldn't, if everyone around me was being killed at my place of work, I probably would not be at my place of work at night alone even with a dog. And I certainly wouldn't have run there after one of the people who may be threatening and possibly killing those people, like was kind of cranky at me and yelled at me to get out of his house. Again, well, I you know, an FBI home. agent is coming to get you. Also. Right. So why wouldn't you stay in your office with the doors locked or something and try and, pre- yeah, I don't know. I don't get yeah. it. I mean, on the plus side, she's not going to procreate. So <laughs> there's that, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Darwin award. Boom. Yeah. yeah. Also, it turns out, and this makes this whole bit makes it even weirder when you learn this part. But Mona is named after Shibon's mother, the writer. He named this character after his mother. And it sounds like the entire name might be his mother's, like maybe his mother's maiden name as well, which is like, okay, I don't know if there's some issues going on there or not, but. That just seems yeah. weird. You would choose this character to name after your mother. Again, like, but... it's that weird thing of, like, I'm going to name something after someone, which I guess is nice. And, like, I can see, I mean, people, like, enter raffles and donate to charity to be named in zombie books so they can be a victim in a zombie book, you know, who gets eviscerated. Like, people like having their names in things. I don't think that's super weird. But just the things that they name after people are just, they're not very flattering things. Well, and like, those those people are making the choice to be like. Right, that's on, what on I mean. Kickstarter, yeah. right? you, you give a little extra on a Kickstarter, you get to be And they'll the put your name in the comic, the yeah. Or something, yeah. But this is not like his mom was like, please name a character who gets killed after me. <laughs> no. 
So yeah. Yeah, it's a little weird. It's weird. <laughs> yeah, and from what I read, it sounds like that is the whole name because they say the character's name of, and they give the whole name. Huh. So I mean, I didn't like pull up is ancestry.com to find out, but it sounds like it's the whole name. So that's funny. But don't know, and also just weird. I'm like, what is going on in that household when he was a kid? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So Scully arrives at Bilak's house, and the front door is wide open. And she turns on her flashlight and she heads inside, calling his name. And on the table, she finds some bowls with like just grains in them and then almost empty bowl of yahe. And she lifts it and takes a whiff. Apparently it doesn't smell great. She's not pleased with it. And meanwhile, Mulder is moving through the museum with his flashlight and he heads downstairs to the hall where the offices and storage rooms are. And then Decker, the security guard, like jumps out and scares the crap out of him. And he's like, what are you doing here? And Mulder says, I'm looking for Mona. I got a panic call from her. And Decker's like, oh, okay, well, I'll show you. And it's dark in there, but she is not in there. And then Mulder's phone rings and Decker leaves. And as he leaves, he turns the lights on. And on the phone, we find out that it's Scully, because who else calls Mulder? And she's in Belak's home and asks if he found Mona. And he tells her no, but her car is parked outside. And then asks if she found Belak. And she says no, but she found some of his journals and she reads from them. And it's like, I've seen the Amaru coming out of the jungle with the eyes of the scorpion and the claws of a jaguar. She leaps down from the trees and tears at my flesh. And Mulder's like, when were these written? And she's like, they're all recent. And then he asks her to read the part about coming down from the trees again, because maybe that's how the intestines got up there. And she's like, I think he's just been tripping. She found a substance in a ceremonial bowl. And according to Bilok's writings, it's a hallucinogen called Yahe the vine of the soul. And it sounds like he's been praying to the Amaru. And Mulder asks what he wants from the Amaru. And Scully says it sounds like he's been invoking the curse. And then meanwhile, as Mulder's talking to her, he's like walking around. He steps into the hall behind the offices and he sees a giant puddle of blood on the ground that looks like it's coming from under the bathroom door. And so Mulder tells Scully that he'll have to call her back. And she's like, did you find Mona? And he's like, I hope not. And he hangs up. Yeah. And in his <laughs> notebook, Belak spelled yeah. Yahe Y-A-J-E, which is probably just a variation given that it's Spanish. And that's common in Spanish to have the J doing that kind of hey sound. And then also this whole thing is written by non-natives. And we're talking about a word that's pretty much a U.S. centric version of a name of something. So kind of makes sense. So, yeah. Well, the fact that he's on ayahuasca makes his journals make way more sense. Because, I mean, obviously we know he's tripping and like his writings are nonsense, but it's just like, yeah. whoa. Yeah, that yeah. sounds about right. All right. Yep. Yeah, I knew. I'm going to give this episode credit yeah, for when, making some sense. When I, that, when I heard like the name, I was like, okay, that's I know that's not the name of what that is. I knew I had an idea in my head of what it was. So I typed it in. And then it just popped up that page. And then, like I said, there's like a gazillion different names for it, depending on where you're coming from. But that name in mm -hmm. particular is basically like a U.S. name for it. So pretty much only used in the United States. So, yeah. Which makes sense. So Mulder goes into the bathroom and he's got his gun drawn. And inside, the blood is everywhere. It's on the walls, on the sinks, in the mirrors, on like everywhere. It's like someone had like one of those spinny sprinklers that was just spraying blood basically and he starts to lower mm -hmm. his gun because all he thinks like well nothing in here is going to get me because there's a lot of blood so whatever's in here is dead but then he hears something from inside one of the stalls and he opens it and Belock is crouched down inside a stall and Mulder asks him what he's doing there and at first he doesn't answer so Mulder asks again and then Belock is like 
she's dead. <laughs> That's not what I asked you. I asked you what you were not... doing here. Also, I mean, it's not funny, but it's just... Oh, <sighs> anyway. So then we see Mulder and Scully interrogating Belak. And Scully's like, where is she? And he says he doesn't know. And Scully reminds him that he told Mulder she was dead, so he must know. And he says he didn't kill her. And she's like, why do you have all this blood on your clothes then? And he says, as he told her, he came here because the Amaru would not be appeased and he was afraid for Mona. He tried to keep her away from all this. She was an innocent. And Scully says that Mona told her he became violent. And he says, well, she wouldn't listen. And Scully says, well, maybe you were too high to know the difference. And then she's like, there is no curse. Is there, Dr. Belak? You are the curse. And he says, no, this is more powerful than any man. It's the spirit of the Amaru, not something you can put in handcuffs. And so Mulder leaves and Scully asks one more time, where is Mona's body? But Belak insists he doesn't know. So then Scully leaves and she tells the cops who are outside that Belak needs to remain in that room until a full search of the museum is completed. And then she heads down the hall. And Mulder calls for her. He's in the bathroom where he found Belak. And he asks Scully why she thinks there's so much water in there. And Scully assumed that one of the toilets overflowed. So Mulder opens all the stall doors and he says there's water on every seat, like every toilet overflowed. Why would that happen? And Scully says, well, there's only one way to find out. So Mulder opens one of the toilet seats and he sees a bunch of drowned rats. And then he finds the same in all the other stalls. And Scully's like, well, how did the rats get in there? And then Decker comes in and he tells him the police found something outside. And they're like, Mona? But it's not Mona. It's Sugar, Mona's dog. Aww. I know. X-Files, stop killing animals. <laughs> stop it. Bad. I mean, all the drowned Bad rats, X-Files. too, honestly. Okay. But Yeah, that's sad, too. Rats are very smart. But, like, <sighs> that poor dog was very pretty, too. It was a very pretty dog. I know the dog, the actual dog was fine, but still, it's just depressing. So inside a makeshift exam room, I guess there's a vet there. I think he's credited as a vet on IMDb. So he's like a veterinarian. I don't know why he's at the museum, but anyway. Well, we don't know how long this has been also. Yeah. So maybe they called him in to do a necropsy. So anyway, the veterinarian tells Mulder and Scully that his necropsy shows the dog died of rat poison. And Mulder's like, someone fed the dog rat poison? And the vet corrects them. The dog actually had a cat's small intestine in its stomach, which then had rat fur inside of it. So the dog ate part of a cat, and the cat had eaten a rat, and the poison probably killed all three of them. And Mulder says, more rats, Scully. Yeah, they do this thing when they take turns saying, the dog ate a cat, and the cat ate a rat, and just like, yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it goes on anyway, for a while. I try to it was totally, un- they did not have to kill Sugar <laughs> to make this logical leap. I'm sorry. They could have figured out the whole rat no. thing. Without killing sugar. Also, you're now accusing sugar of, of being a cat killer and of eating a cat. Like, knock it off, X Files. This is not necessary. Not necessary. Well, I kind of assumed that he would have eaten a, like a dead well, even cat. Then, like, maybe the cat was I dead. Mean, and he found I get the body. it. But I mean, yeah, it's still yeah, gross. Come on. It's gross. Yeah. Honestly, I don't want to think about dead also, dogs or dead cats. So just stop. rat poison <laughs> they're using. Why are there so many rats around yeah, that using it's... that kind of poison? Yeah, that is yeah, an excellent point. Like that, that's just not being metabolized, apparently. It's just like, you're dead, uh, and then just sticking around. So, I don't know what kind of poison that is. 
Yeah, it's pretty hardcore. <laughs> yeah, Mulder says there were rats in Luton's engine, rats in the bathroom, and now rats here. And Scully says, it's an old building. It's got rats. Yeah, what are you going to do? And Mulder thinks that's more than that. The Sakona believe the Amaru will devour anyone who desecrates her grave. And essentially what they're talking about is the transmigration of the soul into animal form. They do a ceremony and they drink the, uh, he doesn't remember what the name is. So Scully's like, yeah, hey. And he's like, to summon the spirits. And Scully thinks he means the rats committed the murders. But Mulder actually thinks the rats were running, trying to escape something. They were crawling up the sewer lines to get out through the toilets, not trying to get back down the toilets after doing the murder. So Scully asks if Mulder's been drinking Yahe. And he's like, <laughs> go with it, Scully. Yeah. Second time he said that this yeah. episode. So apparently like know. biblical amounts of rats are just like, ah, they have rats, whatever. But like you take some drugs, boom, you're a killer despite all signs of animal attack. She like still thinks that he like is the killer. I did too, though, at this yeah. point. I was with Scully. Scully. Has no problem with rats. Like, oh, they're rats. They're, they're just everywhere. It happens. Whatever. So <laughs> It happens. They just, you know, hey. So in the hall, one of the guards tells Scully that Belak is gone. And she asked the guard, like, how that's possible. And the guard doesn't know. He went to check on him, and he just wasn't there. And so they're inside the room. They were holding Belak in, and it's completely empty. And Scully's like, did you step away from the door at any time? And he's like, no. I mean, he's going he's gonna to say no no matter what, but we're going to assume that he's being honest. And he says no. And then Scully asks if anyone else entered the room, and he says no. And then Mulder's like, what about a rat? And they kind of like, what are you talking about, crazy person? And Mulder asks Deckard if he saw any rats in the room, and Deckard says all the time. Why? And then Mulder asks how they get in, and Deckard says through the old heating system. The vents are all over the place. So Scully asks about other doors or windows, but the guard says he checked, and there's only one way out. She tells him to search the whole building, starting with this floor. Meanwhile, Mulder has found some drag marks on the floor because it's not an especially clean room. And so there's like dust and stuff in there. Mm -hmm. And the drag marks lead to a large heating vent behind a table. He pulls away the table with this big vent. And Scully asks what it leads to. And Decker says the old steam tunnels. Mulder asks how to get down there. And Decker tells them they're pretty much sealed up and haven't been used for 50 years. And Scully asks Mulder if he thinks Belak crawled down there. And then Mulder kind of touches the edge of the vent and then shows his fingers. They got blood on them. And it's like, unless he was dragged. So that would account Ooh. for the drag marks in the floor. So And commercial. Mm -hmm. So mm, I'm, I'm thinking he's dead because commercial. So far we've had two commercials. People be dead. Third commercial. Thinking person going to be dead. But we'll find out. Maybe. Yeah. So then outside, Mulder pries up a manhole cover, and Scully's looking at a map, I guess, of the sewer system or something. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. Anyway, she tells him that it appears the system branches off in three directions, and there must be miles of tunnels down there. And Mulder says, and only one way in. And Scully says, and only one way out. She sounds less excited. <laughs> And Mulder's like, ladies first. And she shakes her head. She's like, no, yeah. uh-uh. Obviously not only one way in or out because they're entering in a different way than they believe Belak did. So that definitely, that's two at least. So, um, And if there's miles of tunnels, yeah. I'm willing to bet there's probably another like manhole cover somewhere. Well, I think they mean like one known way, right? Like one way that they know because apparently the map does not have entrances or exits. Yeah, yeah. it's true. True. Mm -hmm. Look, mm -hmm. <laughs> 
I'm not going to fight hard for this episode <laughs> because I'll explain why. But yeah, I mean, this, yeah. Oh, anyway, so then we're down in a tunnel and Mulder climbs down first, followed by Scully. And using the map, they decide to go left. And then we see in the dark, there's an eye watching them with that distorted POV. <gasps> so Mulder and Scully head down a tunnel and there's noise and Scully shines her light on a rat. And Mulder's like, follow that rat. And they walk a little further and they stop. And Scully thinks that right here, they're directly under the museum. And Mulder sees a door that's cracked open. So he runs his flashlight over it and then weirdly walks in the other direction. Yeah, that I was really, a little weird. I had to watch it a couple times because I was so confused, like why he was walking away yeah. from the door. But Scully steps forward and she pushes the door open. And she moves her flashlight over the room and it just seems to contain like old crates and maybe some rusty barrels. And she checks the map again. Also, Scully, like really brought in your flashlight there. She's got it like on super pin light action, like mm-hmm. expanded out a little so you can see more. Yeah. But. Also, I just realized, actually, I realized it a little bit ago, but I didn't have a good time to point it out, that the whole POV thing is very reminiscent of the alien in Fallen Angel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminded yeah. me of that too. Yeah. So Mulder shines his light on a rat and then he finds something and he calls for Scully. And so she comes up beside him and inside this like alcove or side room, there are several bodies and their eyes are clawed out and their faces are mangled. And Scully bends down next to one and says that it's Dr. Luton. And it looks like his eyes were eaten out of the sockets. Mm. Mulder's like, yeah, but we still don't know by what. And then behind them, we get that distorted POV thing again. And Mulder notices and turns and he shines his flashlight in that direction. And the small ginger cat hisses at him. And then when the beam hits the cat in the face, it turns and it runs. And so Mulder follows the cat and it seems to get up on the rafters above them. And Scully asks if he thinks the cat killed those people. And he says, no, these cats. And he shines his light down this mass of cats under a vent beneath them. There's just like cats everywhere. So many cats. Just like a mass of cats. And then a cat jumps down from above and attacks Scully. (laughs) And (laughs) Mulder throws it off. It scratches her face. And she's like, ah, we see like, it's almost like 70s horror where like when they would like, show like things being attacked and you just get like the the fast flashy motion and like little uh-huh. little scratches of blood show up on bodies and you're like uh, uh. and then all these cats come jumping out of these holes in the wall and jumping down and hissing and running and Mulder and Scully run for the exit yeah so that cat was like a, a stuffed cat because Jillian Anderson is apparently allergic to cats so they didn't want to throw a real yeah, cat at apparently her apparently so allergic that she could not hold a cat for even a little bit of time they had to make one out of rabbit which and... is funny because, like, I don't even, like, how are they going to throw a cat at her anyway? Like, it just, <laughs> it's just funny. Well, I mean, it's not like it flies at her. It's like, you see, right, like, I know, you, you but... see this god-awful puppet cat face. I know. It's got, like, fangs coming out of its face, not even, like, in its mouth, but, like, out of its face. and got, like, green eyes. And then they cut to, like, this stuffed animal on top of Jillian Anderson. And then we get the face thing. I'm like, ah, ah, ah. Yeah. And then Mulder grabs the thing and throws it yeah it's not great at first anyway. i thought it was a i i stopped and looked and for a moment I actually thought it was a person in a suit 
oh God. like a little child <laughs> or something because it just looks ridiculous. Yeah, it doesn't look good. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, that's just yeah. Let's just yeah. yeah we'll just, let's just move on. So they reach another area and they close the door behind them. And then Mulder shines his flashlight through some mesh. And on the other side of the wall, there's another massive cat. Although these cats actually seem pretty chill. They're just kind of just hanging out. Yeah. And Scully opens the vent, and inside is Bilak's body. And then we see cats, and they're like, we assume cats, because like the door is being pushed on, and we hear this noise. And then we see they're actually like clawing through the wood, like they're going to get through the door. They're like just tearing this door apart with their claws. So Mulder pulls Bilak's body out of the vent, and then they both crawl in. And then the cats come busting through the door, looking crazy angry. And this one is a puppet, not a real cat. It's like demonic cat. Mm-hmm. And they get into the vent and they close the vent behind them. Yeah, that is like actual video of your cat when you close the bathroom door on them. Like that is exactly <laughs> what happens. They just like claw through the door and they look pissed. Yeah, and they so. get out of the vent and into the room. I mean, it's the same <laughs> room that obviously they were in before. It's that same vent. So mm-hmm. his body, I guess Mulder just, well, Mulder never opened the vent to check it. So if he had, he probably would have saw his body in there because it looked like there wasn't that much of a distance between the two mm-hmm. places. But, yeah. yeah. So the next day, there's a group of rescue vehicles and police cars, and there's like police tape all around the museum. And Scully tells Mulder that the search team is on their way back up. They recovered all the bodies, including Belak and Mona but they found no sign of the cat so far. And Mulder's like, well, we know the cats are down there. And Scully's like, well, no one's denying that, but there are miles of tunnels and animal control is saying it'll take weeks to go through them all. And Mulder says, well, by then it won't matter. He just got off the phone with the assistant secretary of state's office. They've called in the Ecuadorian ambassador. And Scully's like, why? And Mulder's like, well, it took five deaths, but they're finally taking Belak's letter of protest seriously. And they've asked that the museum remain closed until they can act on it. And Scully's like, are they going to send back the bones? And Mulder says the urn will be back in Ecuador by the end of the week. So as the camera pans over artifacts in the museum, Mulder's voiceover says, the Suffolk County coroner ruled the deaths were the result of animal attacks. What motivated them or why no more have occurred since has not been explained. To the museum, the urn was an artifact of a dying culture. It's curse, merely a primitive superstition. But Dr. Belak learned that there is a world beyond our own. Apparently by taking ayahuasca. Yeah. Suffolk County is actually in New York. No, oh, interesting. I thought that sounded weird. I thought it was in Virginia. I had a, while you were talking, I looked it up. It's not in Massachusetts where this is supposed to be taking place. It's actually in New York. So, whoopsie. Anyway, the images switch to the Teso Dos Bichos dig site. And we see men reburying the urn. Mulder says the true curse that struck the museum was a failure to understand that some things are better left buried. And then we see the man in the striped Sarapa that we saw earlier. And he's standing over and watching as the urn is buried. And we zoom in on his face and he has like cat eyes. They honestly look more <laughs> like reptile eyes, but he totally has cat eyes. And I think they're digital because the, the little slit iris is actually do like go in a little bit as he's, as he's looking like they're, tightening up so i think i think that's digital i don't think those are like contact lenses but pretty sure it's digital and then from the urn we get a pov of like the urn looking at him and it's got that distorted yellow vision and then dirt goes over it and then it's the end yep yeah they the dude totally had cat eyes i'm like what (laughs) where did that come from but yeah again they look more like lizard eyes but i guess they're supposed to be you know they're slit whatever slit they're cats right yeah yeah 
so that's the end. And like, I mean, I kind of, all right. Well, first of all, I want to say that like my first thought was I highly doubt this is the case, but I wanted to believe that John Shivon just really likes cats and he wanted to get as many cats on set as possible. He's like, bring me all the cats. And this was like his excuse. It all, honestly, based on the story, it sounds like it's the exact opposite. Like he hates cats because they're not yeah. on this episode. No. And apparently Jillian Anderson is also allergic to cats like we talked about. Mm-hmm. I knew she was evil. You know what's funny, though? So, like, I have a mild cat allergy. I don't let that stop me because I'm not weak. But, like Jillian Anderson. <laughs> but, you know, I've had so many friends who, like, you know, like, oh, you want to come over and play board games? Like, I can't. I'm allergic to cats. Like, I also have a mild dog allergy. And, like, I don't know. I, I guess maybe I'm just whatever. Like, I don't mind it as much. Like, I'll just take an Allegra and suck it up but like some people just really are like and i guess if your allergy is that bad like obviously i have asthma and allergies there are places i can't be either because i just can't breathe so i kind of get it but i just think it's funny how people seem to take their cat allergies very seriously but like dog allergies no everyone's like oh but let me pet the dog anyway because dogs yeah are well we've talked just among ourselves several times about how like you know <laughs> people what they dogs and cats and how like you know it's just a you weird know, dichotomy. A hotel, like, yeah, we're pet friendly, but we won't take cats, but we'll take a dog that will definitely like piss and poop in your room, but a cat won't because it's got a litter box and just right. Yeah, it's just yeah. this weird our, our culture is very pro-dog. And like, look, I'm very pro-dog. I love dogs. Oh yeah. I I grew up with dogs. I'm not like anti-dog in any way. I just think it's funny how so much of our culture is set up to be very you're you you're a dog owner and you're pro dog and people have dogs and having dogs around is normal bringing dogs into the office is normal no one cares about allergies then but then like if you have a cat anywhere near someone they're like i have an allergy and they're like run the other way and i'm just like i get it i have allergies i understand that's painful and if your allergy is bad enough totally makes sense that you would want to avoid a place where cats are but it's just funny to me how people seem to be very heightened with like cat stuff whereas like with dog stuff it's like eh just bring the dog it's cool yeah and i was <laughs> raised in a household that my mother hated cats yeah my mom doesn't like cats either and my grandma yeah it was kind of a yeah and i did yeah. not realize that i was a cat dude until nine years ago basically when we got a cat yeah and i didn't either i thought I, am, I was a dog person now i am super cat dad and uh-huh yeah i actually didn't like cats either because i just had a bad experience with like just my grandma and just having like a horde of cats outside her house and just like there was all this stuff i did try and have a cat when i first moved out like when my in my first apartment Mm -hmm. we knew some people who lived near where i grew up and they had just had a litter of kittens and i got myself uh unsurprising like even back then i got myself a black cat Uh and i loved him but i worked and i lived alone yeah i was not allowed to have oh yeah and he would cry all the time and i also did not know like you know you need to have stuff for them to play with right and all that kind of stuff it was like i had a litter box he got food i play with him when he's there like i did not know like you need to they need to be engaged all the time right kind of thing yeah and he just chewed the shit out of everything i owned Oh, God. And then also was just like crying constantly when I would leave. And I'm like, I'm uh-huh. going to get kicked out of this place. I don't have a place to live. And so I had to actually take him back to the people that I got him from. Uh-huh. And that kind of broke my heart. But then I never had cats after that because I was like, oh, man, cats will tear yeah. your shit up. Well, and I liked cats, but I just never thought of myself as someone who wanted a cat. 
And then I lived in a small apartment and I was working all the time. I didn't have time to like walk a dog and I, you know, I didn't have a yard. And so I was like, well, I'll adopt a cat. I just wanted something fuzzy and soft. And I adopted Billy and it was the best decision of my life. He is my like kitty soulmate. He's so great. And I love Locke yep. too. Locke is amazing too. I mean, so. that's, that's my story with, I mean, that's me and Frank's Frank's and I are just like bonded, like nothing else. Mm-hmm. And yet I basically, he was like, I was like, it was just me giving into my wife who's been wanting a cat forever. I was like, fine. If your sister wants to bring him from California, because she, she, her sister found him like on an island near the airport near Fresno. And was like, we found like she had tried to give him to everybody else and like no one else wanted him. Aww. And like he when they found him, he was probably like six weeks old, super malnourished. And it was kind of like we got a text saying like, hey, do you want a cat? And I was like, you've been wanting a cat for a long time. Fine. Like if they bring him up, we'll have a cat. And they brought him up. And then um, he and I bonded like, ba bam, yeah, like eight weeks old. And then of course we found out he was. We were so happy because he was super skinny, and then he was getting fatter. And we were like, oh, look, you got. And it turned out he had worms. Like, uh, oh he had no, baby. poor baby. He had a belly full of worms. Like the vet, we you know because they took him to the vet when they first found him because obviously you take him to the vet when you first find a cat. And you know he's malnourished, blah blah blah. And then we took him to a vet as soon as we got him. And you know they do the little like bring some poop, and so we brought some poop. We got a call. They were like, "Bring him in now!" Whoa! <laughs> so they were totally surprised that he just not, did not like just barf worms all over the place because he was just like chock full of worms. Oh, poor so, baby! Yeah, but he grew better, and now he's the most gorgeous thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah, he's so, a very gorgeous cat. Anyway, enough of cat talk. Anyway, we love our cats. Yeah, yeah, my cats. I did not think I was a cat person. I am now such a cat person that I can't really imagine having a dog just because my lifestyle. I feel like cats really fit in. But who knows? I mean, who knows what the future holds? I just I really love my boys and I'm lucky to have them. Yeah, so cats are great. I am a cat, apparently. So I mean, I have a lot in common. Yeah. But apparently a lot of folks were disappointed with how this episode turned out, including David Duchovny and Kim Manners. And, and Tori Santani and Nicholas Sage. So Manners, <laughs> so this, this shoot was apparently so rough and so hard that Manners actually had shirts made and he gave them to the crew that said Teso Dos Bicho Survivor. And the back of the shirt read Second Salmon because... Apparently, every time they would edit the script, they would change the script color, which makes sense because you want to know you've got the right version that you're working with, right? And salmon was like one of the last colors. And apparently, this script went through like a dozen revisions once they had started filming or something. And so, like, it went through two rotations of being salmon colored. And that was really rare. I think it shows on this episode, honestly. I think all the rewrites and whatever, I think you can tell. And so that's why. So, everyone. Who worked on the show the crew got that shirt i don't know if anyone still has one if anyone has a picture of it love to see it send it our way tori wants one i want the shirt 100 <laughs> but i'll take a photo of it i just want to see it to be honest i mean we could make one it well but i just want to see the original i want to see what it looked <laughs> like and manners blamed the script for what he saw as this episode's failure 100 agree he basically told everyone like once he got the version of the script i don't know what version it was and i don't know when the cat thing came in or if it was originally what they did and they kept switching back and forth i have no idea but apparently he did tell like chris carter and everyone else he was like guys pussy cats are not that scary and he's like cats are fluffy and pretty you don't make them into killers and he tried to get chris carter to like agree to use the leopard or a jaguar in the final act instead of just like house cats because he thought that would be scarier. And I, I think that would have worked a lot better. 
I also I mean they could... didn't have a live jaguar or leopards. They would have right, but I mean they could have had but... they could have done something. I mean, you know, they didn't they, have to actually. They did have, have the animal. stuffed one, and every time I say stuffed, I have to just think about poor Mister Eddie. Yes. Yeah. So, but yeah. But I mean, I mean there. And the other option was they could have had Belak maybe be the killer. Maybe he like took in the spirit of the Amaru and was like doing her bidding or something. I mean, there's cat like in the there's cat people. So many options besides that. So anyway, he didn't really like the ending. He didn't think it made any sense. And it sounds like no one had fun filming this final act. It wasn't fun for them to be in the sewer, and it wasn't fun trying to wrangle all the cats. Manners even made a comment that the cockroaches were easier to wrangle than the cats. So like, yeah, no one enjoyed this episode, or at least in terms of making it. And a lot of people weren't happy with how it turned out. So I mean, I just have two, and it's like, oh my god. I know I can't even get my two cats to do something at one time. So I can't even imagine. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I do think so before we get to our little last bit that we're, I think our last bit that we're going to come to here, which uh, I think will bring more, a little more fun to it, at least for us. I mean, we talked about cats. That was totally fun earlier. Yeah. I love talking about cats, but here's, here's my, like, if we're talking rewrites, I should probably be saving this for our, I want to rewrite kind of thing but I'll wrap up yeah yeah but we'll just maybe i'll just do a teaser here of maybe the amaru could have possessed mona right oh. we got a fe- we got a female shaman she's there right and so you could actually you know you get that i was kind of impressed they went with the whole female shaman thing to be honest with you so like you know she, they that could have possessed mona also if you want to go with cat you could have had the taxidermy leopard that they show several times come to life uh-huh it, right and so yeah yeah i mean literally true. anything would have been better and made more sense but that's okay they didn't want to do that i guess so yeah yeah speaking of cats speaking of cats some of the animal sounds for this episode were provided by frank welker and Welker is apparently very good at animal impressions and he's provided animal noises for lots of productions. He's also best known for voicing Fred Jones on Scooby-Doo. Yep. We went over some of Frank Welker's career on our very first Scooby-Doo episode on our Patreon only podcast, because honestly, the dude has so many credits that you, that you almost cannot like list them all. He's got Mm-mm. so many. I would argue that he's probably best known for being the voice of Megatron and Soundwave, and Ravage, and Rumble on the Transformers. But that's all subjective and depends on the circles you move in. Fred is definitely his longest-running gig because he started doing Fred Jones in 1969. And as of this recording, his last recording as Fred Jones, well, I shouldn't say his last, his most recent recording as Fred Jones was on the October 1st, 2021 episode entitled Movie Land Monsters from Scooby-Doo and Guess Who? So he has done Fred Jones since Fred Jones existed and mm-hmm. still does Fred Jones. So it's definitely as far as you like pure audio content, mm-hmm. it's definitely like the character he has undoubtedly voiced the most. Right. So, and definitely the one that our Patreon subscribers will know a lot about because we've been talking about Scooby-Doo over on the Patreon, yep. which you we should have. check out. You might have gotten a hint of that on our little Thanksgiving present we gave you all. Yes. A couple of weeks ago. We also hope you enjoyed. We had fun yes, with that. We did. So much fun. So it's good times. Good times. Yeah. Speaking of good times, let's do some ratings. <laughs> yeah. So I was telling Nick before we recorded that this episode is like 
really vying for my least favorite episode of season three, which so far and has been Tori the Tori did not realize it was written by the same dude. I forgot that John Shibon wrote The Walk as well. He also wrote like six episodes of Supernatural, which I'm going to have to go look up and see which episodes they are and if I've already seen them or if they're coming up because <laughs> I know he has 22 more in the X-Files. I'm just, I'm hoping that this was just a, a not good start, maybe. It also sounds like the script was rewritten so many times. And I think you can tell because the way things kind of don't line up and don't make sense. I think there was a lot of trying to rework things to make them fit and just not making solid decisions on where they wanted to go with the story. Things are written so many times, which we've heard that a couple of times on episodes on themselves, Mm -hmm. right? It, It always makes me like, what was the first one? Right. Because sometimes I think version? they've been written so much that maybe what was written before might have actually been better, possibly. Right. Just, yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. I would love to know what like the first version was. I would love to know what version of the ending brought in the just the American short haired cats. And was like, let's go with cats. Gaggle of cats. So, I mean, I get where it leads, but like so much of it is dealing with rats. Well, rats and, and like then, big cats, like yeah, jungle we get the, cats. We, yeah, because we get the big cat in the teaser, right? That's the only time we right. get the big cat. But we get mention the of the jaguar, one. right? So we well, get mention. Well, of the, the well we get mention of the jaguar spirit. Yes. Right. So, so there are big cats and then rats and then for yeah. You know, so I would love to know what version of the script brought that in, and why they just would not switch it over when even the director was like, guys. Um, I don't think this is going to look like you want it to look or be like you want it to be. And I don't know, but that's what they went with. I, don't, I was not there. I do not have any insight into why that decision was made so that it is what it is. I just don't think it works super well. And it doesn't work because like it didn't have to be be like, like you said, it could have been Mona. They could have set up so many different things and it just, there's no real through line. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And like, if Roosevelt was killed right away, why was the thing even shipped to America? Because at that point, like, even if it was packed, like the other guy there at the dig site was like against bringing it. So I don't even know how that happened. Yeah. I don't know. I just have a lot of questions. So I think I'm going to give this episode a three. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. Three. I did not, did not like it. Well, the ayahuasca thing does make like his tripping make more sense because at least I know what that is. I mean, I figured it was something similar, but at least knowing that, I'm like, okay, well, at least I can see yeah. where he's at. Yeah, I like I said, I I I I mean, I've just that stuff exists, right? I'm like the name, I don't know. That's why I looked it up and I was like, oh, okay, that's yeah, because I mean, they're like, I, said, yeah, I mean, I figured it was so, some kind of hallucinogenic thing, yeah, like peyote or something, but I just so, yeah, yeah, didn't know. So yeah, yeah, I immediately thought of agave, which is what tequila is made from. Mm-hmm. So because of, because of the, of the pasty kind of like that, that kind of like cactusy kind of look to it, mm-hmm. that kind of green yellow kind of like jelly stuff. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, but they, I mean, as far as like that name, like the actual translation of the real stuff, like they nailed it with that at least. That's good, you know, vine of the soul, vine of the dead kind of thing, because it is like a really apparently it is a really like viney kind mm-hmm. of plant thing. So, I'm gonna go i was like oh wow when you said three but i think i have to go with a three also because i gave the last one a four and this is definitely not as good as the last one so i'm gonna <laughs> go with a three also yeah so. i liked the last one a lot more and it's funny because like if i watch them in you know quick succession like i do sometimes because like, you know finish butcher watch this and i'm like oh it really makes it stand out is like how much i don't like it when i liked the episode before or you know i'm just like woof yeah. Or if an well, like episode's really Pusher, bad, the one just, after is... For me, Pusher was just boring. Yeah, which is fair. Totally fair. I mean, I felt that way about 
episodes of other stuff we watch where I'm like, this one just mm, didn't get me. Mm. Yeah. So I get it. Yeah, it's fair. This one I just think had a lot of plot issues and a lot of just mm, didn't really make sense. And I think we know why. It's because they had to rewrite it 500 times trying to make it make sense and it just never came together. So. Yeah. So, wow. So quadruple threes for John Sheeban, it seems, because I... <laughs> I have noticed that you've gone through and done some readjustments. Yeah, I, I've lowered my walk so, rating because I really. Yeah, what didn't I found like interesting it. is I was looking at the the three that you changed. You made them all match my scores for those three episodes. Oh so, yeah, I mean that wasn't intentional. I was just bumping them either it, way, but I mean, it did. I I try to make sure it's not intentional when I use my powers of suggestion. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I see. You don't like pusher because <laughs> it hit too close to home. That's why it was boring. I'm like, duh, it's my deadline. I like, like every that's day. What, that's what I Come do. On. Come yeah, on. That's what I do. Come on. <laughs> oh, yawn. Yep. <laughs> All righty. Well, I don't think we have anything else, right? No, um, I think we, we talked about a lot of things. We talked about a lot of things. Yep. All right. And I am sorry to interrupt the cat allergy. I'm not saying that you're a bad person or unnecessarily avoiding places with cats. I just think it's funny because like I've just had some people be like, oh, I'm allergic to cats. I can't go where a cat lives. And it's like, I've never heard that about, I don't know. I don't hear that about other animals. So I think it's funny. <laughs> maybe just because I have cats and I'm sensitive to it. And no one wants to play board games with me. And maybe it's just because they don't want to hang out with me. So that might actually be the situation now that I think about it. Corey is working out some things here in the podcast. <laughs> and uh, yeah. Okay. Well, it's right. kind of a bummer, but it does make sense. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Cat Therapy Hour. And uh, we'll see you next week. Well, we won't see you, but you'll hear us next week. Wow, you're just digging that hole. <laughs> digging, digging, digging. <laughs> digging, digging. <laughs> Got my shovel out. I Want to Rewatch is hosted by Tori and Nick and recorded at Black Cat Studios. That's right. We made this. And be sure to join us next time as we rewatch The X-Files Season 3, Episode 19, Hell Money. And try to figure out if the, the truth, truth is still out there. The truth is what we make of it. And he's Nick. That was awful. <laughs> Sometimes I come in just like, All right. <laughs> you come in hot.
I'm coming in. I'm coming in hot. <laughs> she's Tori. God damn it. She's Tori and I fucking hate this. God damn it. God damn it, Tori. <laughs> Why did I agree to this? Why did I agree to this? All right. Oh, makes me she's feel better. Tori. I think the next episode's pretty good. So Okay. <laughs> she's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files podcast. Season 3. Episode 18. Teso dos Bicos. Oh, God. Didn't say it right. Teso dos... <laughs> All right. Teso dos Bicos. Oh. You, is... you were there until you, you quit at the end. Uh, yeah. Teso dos Beach. Oh, no, I can't even speak. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Teso dos Bichos. Oh, very. That one was very good. We'll do one more. And then I might have you do a couple of those at the end. So. Okay. Yeah. She's Tori. And he's Nick. And this is I Want to Rewatch. An X-Files podcast, season three. Episode 18. Teso dos picos. Teso dos bichos. There you go. One more time. Teso dos bichos. Very good. Yeah. Right. Now I can say it. Yay, Yay. I'm going to Portugal, everyone. See you later. Yeah. I'm going to go hang out on the beach. And they'll be like, why do you <laughs> want to go to the animal graveyard? <laughs> they'll, be, <laughs> they'll be like, um, <laughs> well, you can say. I also, my, I have to pay my respects. I also have a Portuguese. Well, I have a, it's the uh, soundtrack to Life Aquatic where that guy does the Portuguese covers. of. Oh, Sayo George. Say yeah, Sayo George. George. Yeah. yeah, that's the guy's name. Yeah, it's, it's a really cool album. That's the only Portuguese I'm familiar with, but it's good. <laughs> he is in, uh, what is the movie? Which movie is it? Um, shit. Uh, it's not, is it Children of God? Anyway, he's in, a, he's in a movie that's fucking brutal, but he's really good in that one too. And then also nice. he has like a, he has like a singing career. So yeah, yeah. Or just, had, I'm assuming he still does. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. I, I just kept up on it, so have that album because i love the life aquatic i thought that was really cool yeah i mean i think he had a career before but then when the movie came out then he became he had like a career here yeah because people um, got to know him from yeah yeah oh hey lock hi sweetheart you already had snacks and i just saw you eating some kibble from your kibble ball so you're good busted how good honey you had snacks when i came home from the pet store too yeah you got a lot of snacks today 